Welcome to Reinventing Solidarity, a podcast of the journal New Labor Forum and the School of Labor and Urban Studies at the City University of New York. My name is Paula Finn, podcast host and editor of New Labor Forum. Reinventing Solidarity features scholars, activists, and artists on the front lines of movements for social and economic justice. We ask the essential and often provocative questions about race, class, gender, and the role of organized labor and social justice organizations in the work of creating a radically different world, a world with solidarity, equality, and sustainability at its heart. Highlighting three important articles from the spring 2021 issue of New Labor Forum, today's podcast examines the case for the public ownership of energy in halting the climate crisis. Our own Sean Sweeney, who hosts this conversation, has contributed one of these articles assessing the promise and challenge of public energy in Mexico. He's joined by Dominic Brown, who discusses the role of publicly owned energy in post-apartheid South Africa and the current threats to unravel it. And Sinead Mercier offers the example of the creation in the 1920s of the fantastically successful state-owned and operated electricity supply board in the Republic of Ireland. Sean, thanks so much for your work in putting together such an impressive and wide-ranging discussion. And I think a much-needed discussion, Paula, because um, there's a really a crisis in the whole climate protection policy that public ownership of energy, you know, could definitely provide a, a major part of the solution um, for, to that crisis. And I understand as director of trade unions for energy democracy, you closely monitor our global progress toward zero carbon emissions. And we're not doing so well. Is that right? Not doing so well at all. I mean, there's a lot of talk about ambition. Zero carbon is pretty ambitious as a target. Problem is the implementation. And at the moment, the Paris targets, for example, Paris, Paris Climate Agreement targets, are not being met by most of the governments who participated in that in that agreement. So it's a bit, yes, it's a major problem. You seem to believe that the fact that we have made such slow progress towards conversion to renewables is because largely it has depended upon private investment and private profit. That's correct. It's the whole policy for, for 25 years or more has been to provide incentives for private investors, but that gives them the option of not accepting the incentives and investing in something else, which many of them have done. So we have a massive investment shortage in the renewable sector, which is causing a lot of problems. So this is where the debate on public energy as an alternative is so important. Let's turn now to your important discussion with Dominic and Sinead. I want to start with Sinead first. I mean, your contribution, Sinead, really told an inspiring story of how the, the new state of Ireland in the 1920s developed renewable energy, but also did it through a public goods and public ownership model. So it'd be nice to hear you know, that, a few things about that story, because I think it tells us a lot about the how public energy really 
brought electricity to most of the world, if not all of the world that have electricity today, at least. And then I'll go to Dominic and ask the same question, really. When the ANC first took, you know, when apartheid fell, the ANC made commitments to bring more and more people into, into the grid and, um, and expand the electricity system. But that has subsequently changed as a result of the neoliberal agenda for energy in South Africa. So let's start with those, that big question of the role of public energy in the histories of the respective countries. So over to you, Sinead. Thanks very much, Sean. In um, very kind of very difficult circumstances for a young Irish state in the 1920s, like there was a there was a very bloody civil war in in Ireland in the early 1920s, uh, which lasted for for a number of months. And up until then, there had been years of guerrilla warfare, um, to achieve independence from from the from British kind of imperialism and the British state at that time. And yet Ireland was granted kind of a subsidiary kind of Commonwealth position in the in in, in the 1920s and began its process of basically kind of undoing years of kind of it, its tethered to Britain, starting out in this kind of new economic development sort of platform, bringing wealth and prosperity to its people. And it, would, it was very much kind of the idea that electricity brings light and electricity brings kind of enlightenment to the public and also brings about this new wonderful state that they wanted to, to build. There was previously around maybe 300, more than 300 kind of like small energy suppliers. Some of them were kind of like Pigeon House, which was a coal station in Dublin, um, which kind of ran Dublin, that city Dublin Corporation owned. There were also kind of a number of kind of private energy kind of companies and suppliers, but they were kind of like a piecemeal sort of mess. And even though the, the whole system had been in existence from 1880, so for 40 years, there was this for-profit kind of electricity system, but the vast majority of the population was still in kind of darkness and drudgery and very, very hard lives, very high rates of emigration, particularly for women in rural Ireland, because most of the work, the milk churning, the washing, everything had to be done by hand. So you had kind of high rates of, of, of elderly bachelors and high rates of emigration. And the, the young state kind of in very difficult circumstances during, I mean, this was just in between two world wars as well. And even during the Second World War, they kept going with this rural electrification scheme, which was based on the rural electrification administration that Roosevelt had started uh, during the Great Depression and how Ireland planned to deliver this kind of uh, universal access to energy and affordable energy as well, because the ESB was set up with a um, not-for-profit mandate that it would bring value to the Irish state and also as well that it would provide kind of local employment and local development and it had another a number of kind of subsidiary companies established alongside it like Board Namona which was there to exploit kind of turf which is like peat so kind of a like a, a very very carbon intensive and damaging fossil fuel and we, we have to <laughs> state that and very bad for biodiversity as well because you're digging up kind of rare peat bog but the the purpose of these companies was rural development and not-for-profit and kind of rural employment and how they were going to deliver this, this electricity in the very beginning was actually through almost 100% renewable energy through the Ordnacrusha hydroelectric dam and I mean I can't the the dam was completed within a very short period of time at a quarter of the state's budget so it cost 5.5 million which was a quarter of the state's budget at the time. So huge undertaking, all state investment. They tried to get kind of uh, companies from the US to come over to Ireland to build a project 
for the Irish state. But I mean, no company was going to do it because it simply just wasn't going to be profitable and they weren't going to get big enough grant. So in the end, Thomas McLaughlin, an engineer who ended up being kind of a, a head at the ESB, worked with Siemens Schubert, Schubert, I'm probably pronounced that terribly, <laughs> in 1925 to build this dam. And I mean, just even speaking from a, a personal level, my granddad, he was a commercial traveller. So he used to travel around Ireland kind of selling McVitie's biscuits and selling crisps to different pubs and to different small corner shops. And he was one of the first people now to have a Kodak camera because of this. It was mainly to have a Kodak camera to sell it to shops. My mom was always giving out because he was always driving them to order crush a dam <laughs> on, every, on every bank holiday. <laughs> And every holiday he could get to take more and more photos because it was considered globally. I mean, still today it's used as a kind of a blueprint for hydroelectric dams around the world. Roosevelt actually asked for a copy of it, uh, of the plans um, himself, because he was going to use it. And he did use it for a dam that he built as well under the Rural Electrification Administration. So it was it was kind of this huge thing for the state. You have to consider as well that these kind of administrators and civil servants, they were all former revolutionaries <laughs> who had like written books and written ideas about this new state. They didn't have any experience of, of kind of bureaucracy, of, of building these projects. And yet they came up with something incredible, which still today is kind of considered like a, a modernist piece of, of art in its architecture, as well as kind of its, its, its work. Dominic, let me turn to you. I mean, South Africa's energy wasn't built on renewable energy, at least not in the last 50 years or so. And then you've got the national utility known as ESCOM, which was built under the apartheid system. But then the ANC, the African National Congress, which has been in power since the, I think, 1994, correct me if I'm wrong on that, that they, um, they started off with a sort of a pretty much a same view of that we need to bring electrification to the people. Why don't you tell us a little bit about that? And, and then we can also talk about the impact of the threatened right, privatization of the national utility on South Africa and the kind of opposition that's being cultivated to that project. So tell us what happened in the 90s in South Africa. As you correctly state, ESCOM, when formed in the 1920s, in 1923, it was a means of providing large levels of electricity to the nascent or a budding mining sector in South Africa. And the relationship between big mining, the formation of a big public electricity utility that subsidized electricity prices for mining companies, coupled with major steel and public steel companies really formed the backbone of the South African economy. And this was under the British elite, really colonial elite, who formed ties with the Afrikaner elite who were in the big commercial farming. So this big mining and ESCOM, the public utility you speak about, formed the bedrock. Uh, of the South African economy. And this lasted really until today. And we call it the mineral energy complex. And later it became the mineral energy finance complex. This system was really an internal system. And it was really about a local industrialization project at the time based on mining and big agriculture. Fast forward to the 1980s. And 
the apartheid regime is started, starting to be strongly influenced by the neoliberalization of the global economy. And some of the local elite or big capital were starting to get fidgety. They wanted to be able to explore global markets. In light of this, we see changes within the macroeconomic framework. And at this stage already, we see the onset of the commercialization of ESCOM. And in the 1990s, after Sean, as you correctly indicate, the new post-apartheid dispensation comes into power, the African National Congress is the first democratically elected party. And in the beginning, they really are interested in a quite a redistributive macroeconomic framework. And in this, they see the need to redress lots of the historical, social, and economic inequalities. Included in this is the need to provide services to the vast majority of South Africans. And of course, that includes electricity. So this is the onset of the electrification program you speak about. And since then, the ruling party who's still in government, the ANC, claims that close to 90% of the population has been electrified from approximately about 30% in the early 1990s. I think in spite of these claims though, there's, there is some questions that can be put to this. For instance, considering the fact that almost a third of the South African population lives in informal settlements, shack dwellers and, and so on. And another third lives in rural areas means that, and most of these areas are without any services till this day, more than two decades after democracy. And then even those who have gained access to electricity have largely been excluded from actually being able to use it. Why? So in spite of the massive rollout of, or claimed massive rollout, and I think there were substantial gains in the early 90s, we see a quick reversal in macroeconomic policy from the more redistributive macroeconomic framework that was seeking to get growth through redistribution. Growth was prioritized and we see the onset of a shift to a more neoliberal framework. With this, it, we also see then in the early 2000s, the full adoption of a full cost recovery model, which means that the users, the end users are required to pay for the provision or the access of services, and in this instance, electricity. And when you have a case where the vast majority of the population is unemployed or doesn't have sufficient resources to be able to pay for electricity, they invariably are excluded. Now, we did then see the establishment of free basic electricity to be provided to ignorant, ig poor households. <laughs> I, I always have trouble with that word as well. <laughs> and, but it was at 50 kilowatts per hour. I think that's a standard measurement that it's across. And this is inadequate for households especially since that most households in informal settlements and in rural areas have more than four per people per household. So when you consider this, it's vastly inadequate. 
those political economic crises leads to a situation where the public utility has both an economic crisis, it's a utility that largely produces and generates electricity from coal, aging coal-fired power stations. And then with this, we see rising levels of corruption, mis mismanagement, irregular expenditure, etc. And so all of this is conflated to say, because it's a monopoly, ESCOM is a, monop a monopoly utility, invariably it will lead to these problems. And so the solution then is to unbundle it which is effectively to break up the public utility into different components, components for generation, for transmission and distribution. Under the overarching World Bank model that was put forward in the, in the 1980s as a means of do this to get debt relief. South Africa, on the other hand, is not doing this because the World Bank saying so. They're doing this because they believe in a neoliberal macroeconomic framework in spite of er empirical evidence showing that it doesn't work. I could continue for days, but what, what I'm curious about is in your paper on Mexico, you say, well, your government is contesting the liberalization of the energy sector in spite of the fact that the World Bank, the US, international finance institutions is coming back and hitting hard. But not only is, is it what we would see as generally regressive institutions historically and politically, but this is coupled with support from organizations like Greenpeace. So mm -hmm. for me, how is the, the Mexican government and the Morena government dealing with these with this situation and fighting back. It seems to be a very interesting case. The reason why I wanted to write about Mexico is I think it's, it's sort of unique in terms of the global political scene that you have a major government that's basically saying privatization stops here. And it's controversial, and I'll come back to the question about the environmentalists and their position on this. But essentially, the Morena government, which was elected two and a half years ago, I think it'll be three years ago this July, but took office just a little over two years ago, said that we want to restore the country's energy sovereignty and we are going to stop the privatization. And that the promised investment in energy that the previous neoliberal government of Peña Nieto, Peña Nieto was really quite a poster child of the neoliberal elite globally he wanted to he couldn't think of anything about neoliberalism he didn't like so he went on an aggressive privatization campaign and, and changed the law and invited not just u.s oil and gas companies in to do exploration and upstream mining and drilling but he also brought in wind and so private wind and solar companies mostly large multinationals what happened is that the a number of things, same as in South Africa, and I suspect it's what's probably going on in Ireland as well, is that the national utility then has to carry the costs of integrating this new power. So they get none of the benefits, but they have to cover a lot of the costs. And this then gets passed on thus to, you know, to working class people, of course, industries as well. But industries have a capacity to negotiate different prices for electricity, whereas you and I don't we don't have that power. We have to pay what the going rate is. 
So the costs get passed down and the and it gets much more expensive because these system costs have to be paid for. And this is a big problem for the whole idea of, of decarbonizing electricity is, is this, we'd have to, we're gonna to have to deal with this. And the best way of course is through a public ownership model. The government there has basically called a halt and they're trying to change the law now. And the reason why groups like Greenpeace, there are many good people in, active in Greenpeace, but they don't take, they're very agnostic on the question of ownership. For them, it's all about renewables versus fossil fuels. And what the government in Mexico is doing is not just sovereignty over the electricity sector, but also over the oil and gas sector. So the fear is that renewables will suffer because oil and gas will be reconstituted as public entities. It's not true because Mexico imports most of its petroleum products, refined products, and it also imports gas from the United States to burn in power stations, explaining that 60% of its electricity comes from gas. So it's a very complex situation, but it's um, the bottom line is this, that, that what the Mexican government is doing deserves our support. It doesn't mean that they're going to embark on an energy transition to a zero carbon electricity system and get rid of oil. That doesn't mean that at all. But it does mean that they're liberated from the need to guarantee profits for investors from overseas. And that's an enormous first step and an opening, I think, politically. About a year ago, the European Public Services Union, EPSU, produced a report on 30 years of failed liberalization where they focused about of, of the electricity sector and they focused on all of the things that we know, the rise in energy poverty, the rise in cost of electricity. And they then said that, you know, uh, uh, quoting the UN rapporteur on, uh, on human rights, I think, was saying that, you know, the privatization project in the power sector has been particularly damaging. Why is it then, is it so difficult, or it seems difficult to raise the issue of renationalization? Is it because there's belief that, as I, you know, that the renewable energy is going, going forward at great speed and we don't need to take it back? Or do you think there's a smallest beautiful bias in the environmental movement that thinks that if uh, our little community can get some solar panels in the field, they'll be fine. What is it? Why is it so difficult for us? To, and I, I was just on a conversation with unions across Latin America who were advocating for control, retaking control over energy and the power sector, but didn't like the idea of national systems being returned to where they were. And we know the problems of state ownership of in Latin America are particularly unique, but why? what can we do to bring public ownership of, of, of a comprehensive reclaiming of power systems into the debates in the trade unions, for example, and even the environmental movement? It seems to, their eyes glaze over whenever this issue comes up. So your thoughts, Sinead, on the, the politics of this? Yeah, like it's a, it's an, it's a very, yeah, it's a great question. It requires a lot of nuance in answering because I am, I, I would, I would think of myself as, as an environmentalist, you know, I would be very, very strong in terms of, of climate action, having worked with, with the Green Party and, and, and kind of helped to set up a lot of kind of groups such as Not Here, Not Anywhere, which is anti-fracking and, and, and so on. And I would consider myself very much kind of of that kind of ecological, small as beautiful sort of, 
anarchistic in, in some manner uh, kind of thinking. But I, I do, I think, I think, yeah, it, it's, it's fascinating because having read T, T, Trade Unions for Energy Democracy's kind of work, I, it, it sort of really hit home to me that we are operating in these silos. And I think it's, it's not quite fair to say that environmental organizations were, they're not, it, it's not that they are, were advocating for privatization and liberalization. They were never kind of asking that the energy system be handed over to private companies. And I'm sure that there would be kind of a bias against that happening. It was more that they were just sort of not on the scene at all. I mean, they were really nowhere to be found in these huge conversations in the kind of 1990s, like 1926. Like I even found debates with the Green Party uh, with um, a number of kind of very good politicians at the time engaging debates over the electricity regulation directive in 1928. And they just never brought up these issues that, well, what does privatization mean? Everyone kind of assumed that it would be positive. And then in the early, in the early 2000s, you had a very inter interesting situation of the carb conflict. So what that was, was off the Irish coast, there was a, a large gas field was found and the whole kind of through corruption and um, through kind of dodgy facilitative neoliberal kind of state at the time, the project ended up being given to Shell, who caused untold damage to a small rural Irish speaking, like that's the national language, rural speaking farming and fishing community off the west coast of Mayo. And they just like really ruined co community cohesion around the project at the time. But it was fascinating because you kind of had this split in the environmental movement. For decades, we've had it, I suppose, Ireland as a post-colonial nation. You kind of have this very strong grassroots environmental justice sort of concept of rural communities, such as in Carib in, in Mayo, which are against projects because of the, the health, because of the safety, because they love the, the environment, they love their landscape. They saw their Irish language and the, the protection of the heritage of that as very much connected to the protection of place and, and people in place, which is kind of very similar to like Eastern European kind of state is a brilliant sociologist called Hilary Tovey who's tracked this and very similar to Global South kind of arguments over land rights and so on. But then you have this sort of Northern European environmentalist kind of class, which, you know, like obviously these things are all checkered and they're all very kind of nuanced, but you have this idea that there's a kind of this technological kind of class that sees climate action as something kind of that's, that's the preserve of experts, that's not really connected to these kind of political arguments on the ground, that's a matter of larger energy systems, that's on, that basically there's no left, there's no right, there's green. <laughs> you know, which, right. which, yeah. which myself, I've, I've actually even said that. <laughs> yeah, you know, so I know, yeah, before, like learning a lot uh, over the past few years. It's like, and it's a very easy trap to fall into because you have this idea that, you know, we're all on one, planet and you know we're all one kind of like but but once you kind of understand intersectionality or kind of the basically power dynamics and how they work and I feel that the environmental movement in many respects maybe didn't really cotton on that this was a, a, a question of power and the trade union movement was very very much left on its own to defend 
the system being publicly owned. And now you had splits in the, even within the trade union movement. I mean, you had kind of the higher class kind of engineers <laughs> who were saying that, you know, it should be privatized and they should get kind of a share while the kind of more kind of day-to-day -day staff were saying no. So you do have, have splits and nuance again within this. If we think back at the, like the German sort of energy transition, which in German they call Energiewende, right? The Energiewende was based on the idea that there's so much sun, so much wind, that everybody with, tech, with now solar panels and wind turbines, everybody could be part of this the climate solution. And so let's disperse it down. This is most visions of dem energy democracy believe that. But when you actually look at the technical aspects of this, there's absolutely no way <laughs> solar panels on rooftops can generate more, if every rooftop in Barcelona, and this is a study that just came out, was fitted with a solar panel, every rooftop, 600,000 homes, it would generate about 20% of the city's electricity over the course of a year. That's every. In New York City, 1 million buildings, if they all had solar panels, it would be 16% of the city's electricity use, leaving aside the problems of variability. So I think we, we were all, and I put my hand up higher than most, technically illiterate. We got into the politics of climate. We tried to get unions and we were working with unions. We didn't really know much about electricity. And that's why this kind of discussion is important is to acknowledge. Are we not seeing similar sort of smallest beautiful kind of things in the climate movement, which is very white, I believe, in um, a middle class in South Africa, and how do how can unions in particular, and this is also a question for Sinead, how can unions say, we are on the right side of this issue, we want to address the climate crisis, we want to transition, but we have to acknowledge that this is not going to be done through either community projects or through privatization or or behind the meter, as they call it, technically solutions to the problem of fossil fuel dependency. What would you say about the politics in South Africa? We've heard a little bit about Ireland. It'd be good to get a sense of what's happening there. So I think we must understand the energy system within a broader political economic framework. And so it's in this instance, then when looking at the numbers really sheds light on the situation and then gives sense of where interests are at play. Now, of course, trade unions also have an interest. And yeah, uh, the energy, the unions in the energy sector are also quite a force, as well as the public sector unions here. And they have been defending the public utility and they have been fighting against the moves for the increased liberalization of the energy sector. But most of the time it's been under the position that we have to defend our jobs, all right? Without uh, critiquing enough, I would say, not enough, the problems of corruption, not making a strong enough argument in relation to the need, enough of an argument, they have made an argument for the need to advance a climate jobs and a climate and an uh, approach to deal with the current ecological catastrophe we're facing globally. So this is a limitation I think that we are facing on the left as environmentalists in advancing the need to transform the energy system towards and reclaiming the public as a means of being able to do this. 
So I think we're up against it. And it's all of these things, including a, hege a hegemonic system. And in spite of the Financial Times in April last year saying we need a greater role for states, we need government intervention for a just recovery, for a just transition, we've seen that quickly roll back. We've seen the market graining prevalence and priority once again. And, and the doubling down, I would say, in many countries, maybe not in the state, Sean, but in many countries of an austerity agenda, we are not getting stimulus packages. We are getting major budget cuts and the further liberalization of our energy systems. Mm. So I think this is the problem. And until we get real about the science as environmentalists and what needs to be done, and until I think on the left and as unionists, we strengthen our arguments and include the critical importance of the ecological crisis in, in, in taking up the argument for economic uh, justice and social justice, I think we're also on the back foot. So it's about, I think, bringing these things together. I, I think it would be good to talk about some of the, the actual processes in the terms of the energy sector in South Africa. But before getting there, Sean, maybe your take on why we're struggling to win. You've been, you, I think you are one of all of the, our influences or inspirations in looking at the numbers. You've been saying, look at the numbers. Don't even believe me, look at the numbers. Why do you think we aren't able to win? And how is it that Mexico, what's the, what's, what's the dynamic there that's obviously you're saying it's not a massive environmental just transition Morena government, but that they are saying they want energy sovereignty. So, well, that's a great question. I, I think, you know, it does intersect with a sense of nationalism and that can go right wing, it can go left wing. But in Mexico, there was always a feeling that the Cardenas government of the 1930s, when it nationalized oil, did it, you know, actually, funny enough, roughly around the time Roosevelt was uh, uh, implementing the first New Deal, it was considered to be a massive national victory against imperialism because the oil companies were US. And so they nationalized it and Pemex, which is just the national oil company, has become a national institution. But similar to ESCOM, the national utility in, um, in South Africa, there have been a campaign over the last 20, 30 years, some of it based on truth, corruption, some of it based on not untruths, like the public is always less efficient than private, to undermine the status of Pemex as a national institution. But interestingly, in Mexico, it didn't succeed. Most people still are very proud of Mexico because it's been provided, it's, you know, it's been pretty prudent and how it's used oil. It's turned Mexico into a, at least a semi-developed, if not more advanced, becoming a more advanced economy. And a lot of that is to do with the, the Mexican control over its own resources. There needs to be the sign of audacity that FDR and Cardenas in Mexico in the 1930s. That's, I think, what we've got to, we've got to aim for and, um, and just be a little bit more confident about it. I think we've got the technical arguments on our side, but the strength of our arguments won't be enough because it is complicated and urging our comrades across the trade union left and the broader environmental movement 
to pay attention to some of the technical issues is, is going to be a challenge, I think, in the next few years. But it's when I think we can make some serious progress with. And the case for public energy, the climate case for public energy, I think, is, is indisputable. But we've still got a long way to go to make sure other people agree with us, which is why we did the addition for the New Labour Forum coming out in the spring. Engagement with issues like these forms the basis of the classroom experience at the School of Labor and Urban Studies, where our preeminent faculty and engaged and diverse student body grapple with the most pressing challenges confronting organized labor and working class communities. For more information about the school, visit slu.cuny.edu. To learn more about the podcast and listen to other episodes, visit slu.cuny.edu slash podcast. And to subscribe to New Labor Forum or sign up for our free monthly newsletter, visit newlaborforum.cuny.edu.